Hello and welcome to the Talent Equals podcast. I'm your host, William Leighton. And in today's episode, we're talking all about distributed working. Now, before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, distributed working was the norm only for a privileged few. And this is despite the existence of technologies that would support those digital nomads. They would support you or me working from anywhere in the world in a highly productive and integrated fashion. But most people were still forced to live near or commute to the office each week. This idea of presenteeism, of showing up at your desk each week, regardless of its actual functional necessity, was still heavily pervasive in our working culture. But the pandemic has changed that. As companies have been forced to radically rethink their working practices, many office workers have been granted a new level of autonomy almost overnight. And the leaders in organisations used to present employees have had to adapt, have had to find new ways of working. Jezen Thomas is with me today and he is the CTO of Superseed. Now, you may recognize the name Supersede because in a previous episode, we had the other co-founders, Ben Rose and Jared Lee, talking about what Supersede is trying to do in reinventing the reinsurance ecosystem. But now I want to turn to their work practices, the way that Supersede has leveraged a distributed workforce to compete for talent, to compete at doing the very thing that all of their competitors are doing in fixed locations. We're going to talk about the principles that enable effective distributed working and the challenges of having a distributed workforce and then how Supersede manages and cares for those remote employees and Jezen's own journey into the role of of CTO at Supersede. Jezen is another very thoughtful co-founder, proving to me why I think um, Supersede really should be one to look out for. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, I give you Jezen Thomas. Jezen, welcome to Talent Equals. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Well, Jezen, you're one of the other co-founders of Supersede, and I had your colleagues Ben and Jared on the on the show recently, and you've been kind enough to join us as the CTO and talk about and maybe a slightly different topic to what you're doing at Superseed. But before we sort of dive into the detail, I'd sort of thought your story, your journey into technology is very relevant, I think. And so I, th- I think maybe could you, could you just share like how you got into tech and becoming a CTO? I think it, it came down to necessity. I was originally a professional musician. And that was my life passion back in my teens. I played the drums in a rock band and traveled around Europe and the Middle East playing shows. But unfortunately, the arts are drastically underfunded, (laughs) to put it lightly. And it it gets tiring not being able to afford rent or or to feed yourself. Uh, And by the time I was 20, I think I was, yeah. 
21, 2021 maybe, I was uh, not homeless, but having to stand on the street in Holborn, in London, every day and eat with all the homeless people. Uh, you know, thanks to, to Harry Krishna, who, who kindly feed people who don't have food. Uh, and, and not having any resources like that is, is pretty tough. So I, I tried to make a change in my life. And computing is something I've, I've always just done. I loved computer games as a child. I loved sort of making or modifying games. So it was a, a natural path into just tinkering with things more generally. And then I would build a website for myself. For example, when I was teaching music privately, I needed some way to market that service. So that's the skill I had, which I shopped out to some agencies in, uh, in, in Sweden, where I, I moved to when I was um, 18. I was sort of back and forth between the UK and Sweden. And fortunately enough, one web development agency in Gothenburg in Sweden were uh, kind enough to, to, to give me a chance. And I, I wasn't really good enough to have a job at the time, uh, but I think I killed them with enthusiasm. And, and they didn't have the heart to not keep me on for um, longer than my initial two-week trial. So I worked there for, for seven months, and that was my foot in the door to the industry. Uh, and then I, I gradually did a sort of land and expand approach with, with my skills. Um, I, I constantly tried to, to get better at, at different programming languages and different approaches to things. Um, become more broadly knowledge and, and eventually ended up building my own products in their entirety and then um, marketed them myself and sold them to, to people, got, client, got customers and made some money by myself. And then I realized that uh, while I can do the sales and marketing and sort of business side of this job, um, it's not really something I, I wake up in the morning and I'm passionate about. So I realized that if I really, if I want to become a success of anything, I'm going to have to find some smart people to partner with who can do that salesy side. Mm. And that's how I eventually found Ben and Jared a few years ago. Wow. I feel like there's many points upon that storyline I want to touch on. Um, so, um, excuse me if we we backtrack a few <laughs> a few steps there. Sure, let's do it. Um, let's let's do it. Right. So, you were paying rock and roll in the Middle East. Why the Middle East? First of all, what? Uh, well, okay. I I played I played in a rock band in Sweden mostly, um, but in the Middle East I did other stuff. So. Um, I, th I think it's uh, any professional musician's responsibility to uh, be very diverse and to play anything. So I was a drummer, but I, I could play a little bit of piano and I could, I, st I still can sight read music. Um, and I did a lot of jazz theory and a lot of harmony classes. I went to uh, the, the weekend school in, in the Sage Gateshead in the north of England. I got a scholarship to go and study there when I was 16. Um, so music was a, a very serious thing for me. Um, but in the Middle East, I was actually part of a street theater company. Uh, and we would walk on two meter high stilts and play 
sort of marching drums um, while dressed as a giant animal. It could be a bird, it could be a robot, um, it could be an ant. Or We had a, a bunch of different costumes, and I did this in yeah, the Middle East a couple of times and in Italy and Belgium and Portugal, a bunch of places, yeah. Oh, wow. So you were really like doing the whole traveling troupe thing. That was uh, the, the, yes. the musician performer was taken to the nth degree. Now, how old were you when you were doing that? I, I was 16 when I started traveling wow. with that theater company. So hmm. um, I, I remember one of my first international performances was... I had, to, I had to skip school, essentially, to, to go and do this thing, which I think is not allowed in, in the UK, but um, my, nope, my not friends many were at school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my friends were at school, and I was uh, sort of lying down in the back of an old Sprinter van going you know, from Newcastle down to, to Dover and then across. Into, we, went, we played in, uh, in Ostend in Belgium. Uh, and we, we played for their Halloween parade. Which was really, really funny, actually, because the local council of Ostend turned off all the streetlights. And I was wearing a mask as well, this sort of big, I think it was an ant themed head. And in, in that part of Belgium, or probably other parts as well, the, uh, the, the drains in the street, the gutters, are like this modern design. It's like a f- uh, flat metal plate. But because this is the end of October, it's cold and it's slippery. And I, I slipped on the drain and I very nearly almost fell over, which when you're on two meter high stilts, that's a long way down. It's and a long way down. It hurts a yeah. bit when you fall. I did fall one time in Salamanca in Spain. I, I ended up in the newspaper for that. It was very funny um, because once you fall over, you can't get back up. And I was dressed as a giant butterfly. And this is the last show of the, of the, the tour that, that week in, in Salamanca. And um, I had gone for a much longer walk than I was sort of, uh, than I had done previously. And the children in this parade were a bit more confident and were trying to sort of pull me down out of my costume. And I, I tripped and I fell, fell a long way. I, I sort of came out of the costume with a bit of a bleeding nose <laughs> surrounded by people who were terrified. <laughs> and I had to walk wow. back to the van through the city in a sort of skin-tight cat suit because that's all you wear under the costume. Wow. So you were living something of a precarious life, both metaphorically and also practically there by walking on stilts and being a performing artist all over Europe. Like, Yeah, it was an that's... adventure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but adventurous, right? I, I wonder, like, see, that was all sort of, self was that sort of self-led do you want to just go and do that was that sort of just the learning that you wanted to follow and you just followed it what was the what was the thing that you you sort of what motivated you by that and what are the values you think you've reflect on now based on those experiences i think it's it's just a, a part of my personality that i have a bit of tunnel vision um, i like few things but the things that i like i tend to focus on to the, to the detriment of everything else that's for, for better or for worse, I suppose. So I was very much into skateboarding and snowboarding as a kid, and that's all I ever wanted to do. And the music was the same. Um, and I think it was extreme sports, music, and computers. 
And mm. I've ended up falling back to the, the one that provides you with an income. Mm. Well, that uh, I feel like it, is, it was a stage there. So from your music and your performing, and then you talked about that moment of realization where you were homeless and you were, you were living in a, on the edge, I suppose, you know, with charity of others. You talked about Hare Krishna's there. And it's at that moment then you reflected that you needed to do something different. Um, and that's where the, the move towards computing came. But yeah, I should clarify, that, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't homeless. Uh, oh, you I'm weren't very, homeless? No, oh, but sorry. I was eating with the homeless every day. You were uh, with the homeless, okay. Because well, I, I had no money to pay for food. Uh, oh, okay. I was living in a council flat in London. Uh, mm. So I wasn't I wasn't that hard done by, but it, it wasn't it wasn't nice. Mm. Um, but it, I mean, t- to try and find a, a silver lining in that, it mm. it gave me um, a, a really good opportunity to to question my philosophical standpoint in life. Uh, I've I've always been uh, an atheist or at least agnostic, but uh, it was. Uh, devout people who were feeding the homeless or and still are, I suppose. Mm. So it, it, it made me question how strongly I should challenge uh, conventional religions, if at all. You know, thinking more, more deeply about it, do, do, do organized religions have a monopoly on, on compassion? Probably not. But, but there was something to learn, definitely, for me. Mm. Well, I certainly hear in that a type of humility um, from being where you are, but and also um, a recognition of compassion and kindness, and when others show that to you, it's very, it's much easier to remember that and to to then foster that and into the the way that you approach the world. Um, Definitely, yeah. And it's um, it's always incredibly humbling when others show you kindness when you have nothing to give in any other way. Um, simply just a thank you, and that's a I think a, a very pure form of of compassion to to show. So um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to hear that sort of, but that kind of brings to me like also your motivation and I'm, I'm interested there because you self-taught and you self-taught, you went to Sweden and you kind of turned up as that plucky young man um, at a, I think you said like a web development agency and they gave you the work, right? Or a development company, they gave you the, the opportunity. So when you reflect on that, they weren't hiring you for your competencies, they were hiring you for your values, right? And um, that seems to be, Yes, a very interesting thing to consider, right? This idea that they were looking for someone who, kind of, they they could identify with, and but up to that point, how do you reflect on that? I mean, that that motivation, that that need, is what got you where you wanted to go. But and you and you weren't going through, you know, you weren't going through computer science education. You weren't going through the big universities at this point, right? You've literally focused on teaching yourself these skills. Yeah, well, I mean, there's. There, there are multiple paths to, to get to more or less the same goal. Um, not that I would discount uh, a traditional computer science education. Um, mm. I, th- I think there, I, I would like to have had some of that more formal training. And some of my colleagues at Superseed have that formal training, and it's hugely beneficial to us. So I, I definitely value that, but it's, it's not the only way mm. and it's, it's not the way that I went, uh, for, for various reasons. Well, I think this, 
this sort of feeds into maybe the next question I want to ask you really, which is what does distributed working mean to you? So I stipulated from the beginning of the company that that we're going to be a distributed team. And this is partly for my own selfish reasons. I don't want to be bound to an expensive hub like London. But it's also, I think, a a very good um, bit of leverage for the business because we now have access to talent all over the world. And uh, we, we can compete with much larger and much wealthier companies um, on different bases. So I think a lot of my colleagues could go and work at uh, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, these companies, if they wanted to. And, and you know, they, they would earn a lot more money for, for doing that. But work has to be more, more, more than just about money, really. Mm. So one of the ways that we compete is, well, the people that we tend to attract, I think they, they like to sit at home, do the work that they enjoy, but also be able to sit in their garden and take care of their cats and not have to deal with getting up in the morning and cramming themselves onto the tube. So it started with a, a selfish desire, you said. And what is that selfish desire for you to be distributed? I've always traveled and I'm, I'm traveling currently. Uh, so I, I have... I have a car and some stuff, mostly clothes and a computer, and I spend roughly a month in, uh, you know, I, I, I travel to a different country sort of every month. I've just arrived now in Ukraine. Uh, previous month I was in Bulgaria, and before that I was in Turkey. And I, I wouldn't want to miss out on that cultural experience. I, I really love being able to interact with, with different people and see the way that different people live and, and different cultural values and customs and, and that sort of thing, which is actually really beneficial to my role. I mean, it's, it's kind of tautological now. Um, mm. You know, I, I like interacting with different cultures and becoming more worldly, which makes me better suited to managing a team that is more worldly because mm. I can empathize a little bit better, I think, with people of very different backgrounds, which is mm. one, one of the challenges of having a distributed team. I know that some companies, when they say distributed, they mean, oh, you can be anywhere in the US or, or you must be in the UK or you must be in Europe somewhat. In our case, we have people all over the world, um, which, which brings a number of challenges. But I think for us, it's a net benefit. Uh, this has actually been great for us during the pandemic. And uh, one of my colleagues normally lives in the Netherlands, but he decided to go and live in the Caribbean in his family house. I think originally just for a month, but then ended up staying there, I think, for six months. I mean, the, the reasoning being it's nice in the Caribbean. Everything's locked down in the Netherlands. What's the point in going back? Mm. And, and, and indeed, what, what is the point? Um, you know, I, I, I really appreciate that minimalist philosophy of uh, living more deliberately and choosing the kind of life that you want rather than it being sort of dictated to you by that constraint of 
having to live where your office is. So is that like, so in terms of distributed for you then, you use the word minimalist and um, deliberate. It kind of thinks of, it kind of brings to mind this idea of authenticity. You know, you just, I hear in this that you can just be much more authentic to like what you want to do and who you want to be and where you want to be. And it's within the distributed model, you're saying um, the way, the where in which you work is fine. I don't mind as long as the output is such that we get the quality that we need, right? Um, so is that what you think about it also? Do you, do, you, do you resonate with this idea of authenticity to distributed working? Um, and that it, it ends up kind of blurring less with this idea of you know, the, the work and the private life. How have you thought about that? Yeah, I, I, I've never liked the idea of, and I, not to be crass, but I think it's often referred to as butts in seats. It's, I don't think that's, that's what a healthy office looks like, just you know, ensuring people are sitting in their chair for eight hours. I think that's nonsensical. And I've worked in offices before where it was, I think, a point of pride for the company that people spent so much time in the office. But actually, a lot of the time spent in the office was on Facebook, playing PlayStation, uh, drinking. There was quite a lot of alcohol in the office. And as far as meaningful work, not, not much happened. I think the company eventually kind of tanked. Um, but I, I, I don't want to have that kind of company. I, I think it's, it's a bit of a trope, and I think it's a bit of a pathetic one that that so many companies try and attract people with, uh, with, with juvenile novelties. Like, oh, but we have, you know, drinking nights and we have a foosball table. And I think for a lot of people, well, at least the people that I work with, um, they, they don't care. They have lives. They have their loved ones. They have the things that they care about. They want to be able to do their job comfortably and maintain their sanity and then go home. Yeah, I find that interesting because I, well, certainly what I think about is that you end up creating a tribe of like-minded people, people to which the, the model that we're talking about serves. Um, I, I think it's that there's, a, there's like an inevitable flexibility, which I, which I appreciate, but there, is a, there, is, there are deep-seated cultural beliefs about going to the office, which are still happening right now and are still trying to be overcome. And I think we only have to see recent letter from... Tim Cook to the Apple employees talking about needing to return to the office at least three days a week. Um, and I find that, that, that model from a company that's, that is creating, you know, tech that's supposed to be mobile, almost, you know, so counterintuitive. It's so, so feels so rooted in a different time and a different way of working, given what we've just been through in a pandemic that it almost just, detracts from this idea of freedom and authenticity it's you know it's a prescription of you must be in a place to produce work it, it feels in a way to me like a type of commitment to a servitude or or even a lack of trust that things can be done in a certain way um and i, I think that's maybe where I, I i but i do understand that feeling working in a distributed way can feel very alien to a lot of people and so and I think a lot is very misunderstood. So I suppose I, I would, you, and you guys have been doing this before the pandemic. So my, my question was one, well, you've already talked about that you could attract people that may otherwise be able to go to Apple or to such. So it's obviously an advantage. But I suppose my question to you is, 
What principles do you feel enable really effective distributed working? Good writing and patience. <laughs> and that, that dramatic pause wasn't intentional, but it, it was neat. <laughs> Good writing, very much underrated. Yeah. Do you want to explain that for us, please? Uh, a lot of what our company does is, is discovery and invention. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a science and an art. And there is a lot of context and nuance that has to be expressed in all of the ideas that people on the team come up with. I think writing that vividly, comprehensively, is it ends up being much quicker than explaining the same thing badly a number of times to, to everyone on the team. Um, and, and for each time there to be some misunderstanding. So I, I, that's, that's also why I say patience because it, it often feels like, uh, it's quicker just to jump on a call with someone and, and have chat about a thing, get a status update or, or, you know, or can you move this button to the left a bit, something, something. And I think that impatience actually leads to chaos. It leads to uh, people not knowing what they should be working on, not knowing what the strategy is, and people wasting time working on the wrong thing. And I think that's um, one, one thing we really care about at Superseed is uh, just being calm. We, we can let our competitors panic and fumble over themselves and we'll be calm and we'll iterate and we'll, we'll get it done and we'll do it right and it's going to be great and that's worked for us really nicely so far do you do you help train that or do you interview for that is that what you sort of over interview for or how do you because you've got lots of cultures as well so it's and you've got people in all over different parts of the world so presuming some of those maybe are not native english speakers so how do you manage that yes it, it's it's difficult as you said it's it's you know, deceptive and it's, it's quite tough. Uh, and that's just where experience plays into it. it there, there's, there's an art and a science to it. There, there's no quick, easy fix to find the good writers in the same way that there's no quick and easy fix to determining uh, people's productivity in the team. And I, I find myself in these discussions a lot around how do you measure a developer's output? How do you know that people are doing their job? Um, mm. Can you track the number of bugs they fix or the number of cards they move in your project tracker or number of pull requests or, or lines of code written or some such metric? And basically all of those are nonsensical in the same way that, you know, asking a doctor or a scientist for an estimate on when they're going to cure cancer is nonsensical. So, so many of these questions are, um, piece of string, how long is a piece of string type questions. And we, we do try and attract people who communicate well. Well, that's what we're looking for when we're hiring people. Not exclusively, but that plays heavily into it um, to varying degrees as well. Of course, our writing standards are not going to be the same um, if, you know, between someone who is a native English speaker and someone who isn't. But there, I think there is 
there, there's uh, quite a big difference between command of a language like English and how you communicate and express yourself. I think somebody can, can communicate their ideas very, very clearly, even without uh, speaking their native language. Mm. And I think it's, it's more to do with defining the essentials of an idea mm. and removing all the rest. Mm. I think yeah. actually <laughs> this is probably more applicable, uh, probably equally as applicable, but I find it quite applicable to, to business people. And the business people in our team uh, are all, uh, they, they, they're all uh, native English speakers. But there is a culture in the corporate world of speaking in this kind of secret language and, and saying lots of, of words that don't actually mean anything. I remember the first fintech company I worked at, it was my, my bosses were from sort of McKinsey and from uh, some banks. They're extremely corporate guys. And uh, I, I would always tease them for it that they would say to me, oh, Great, Jez. And so um, we'll reach out and touch base, is what they would say. And I'd say, you mean you'll call me and we'll talk? <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I'm guilty of saying reaching out and issue. touching base. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's interesting because, I mean, as I mentioned, first of all, I'm guilty as charged on, on using those types of flowery language, um, being a Britishman. And um, yes, like maybe liking the sound of my own voice too much. Um, but there is something to be said about simplicity. Uh, maybe it was Winston Churchill said, I had to, I didn't have to, I had to write you the long version because I didn't have time to write you the short version. And it like is so one. much easier just to, just to net, just to write stuff down. And I mean, it, it's hard to be brief and to be meaningfully brief and contain a lot because it does take a lot of effort and thought. And so I hear in that that you guys are asynchronous in a lot of the work that you do if you're working across time zones. So um, if you've got different people in different places, and that's the reason that you have to have this strong written form of communication because a lot of the way that you're working isn't going to be synchronized. Is that correct? It's, it's part of it. It's, it's definitely the, the ambition. I think it also just scales better mm. because... As I said, I, I don't think you save any time by not writing things down. I think e even just the process of writing things out, uh, there's, this, there's this idea in software development called rubber ducking, where perhaps you're struggling with a problem, some engineering problem, some algorithm, and you, you can't quite get your head around it. And so uh, it, what, what often happens is you ask for help. You ask somebody else for help. And... In the, just in the process of describing the problem to somebody else, that triggers something in your brain uh, to see the solution. So, mm -hmm. so with rubber ducking, it would be that you have, let's say, a, a rubber duck, a bath duck on your desk. And when you get stuck, you just explain the problem to the rubber duck. And in that process of forcing yourself to, to clarify the constraints of your problem, you begin to see the solution. You begin mm. to, to see the essentials of the idea. Writing does the same thing, absolutely. I think a lot of people find this when they're, when they're trying to get their sort of philosophical ideas out in their blog. They'll really con 
consolidate an idea. They'll learn more about their own thinking process just by writing things down. Mm. So that's valuable in and of itself. But then also, it's much easier for everybody else in the team uh, and all the people who are yet to join the team, but will at some point, who still need this information. It's, it's easier for them to consume the information if it's written down. And, mm. and again, it, it, seems, it seems so simple that it wouldn't have much value, but actually it's one of the most powerful things that we do. Mm. I like that, rubber ducking. I had, um, it, it strikes me of, of journaling, I suppose, and as well, and the power of you know, just getting your thoughts down on paper. I, I must say I've, um, I've approached it somewhat differently. I've, I've got a slightly adjacent example, but um, I, I coach um, under sevens football, under eights now. Uh, and to coach under eights football to, to young kids, you first of all have to explain all of the basics that you take, for example, for, for granted. And in designing some training programs, I actually was working with my, my colleague, Samantha, who has no experience of football. And I had to explain the training session to her. And when I explained it to her, she asked me a really good question, which was, what is a throw-in? And, and I was like, oh, I, I hadn't actually explained what a throw-in was. And then she said, well, how do you get a corner? And I hadn't even explained like, how you get a corner in football and how the, all these like, very simple foundational principles, which I had taken for granted in my own experience, were so fundamental to the actual lesson itself. In explaining to somebody else, it really brought home what I was missing. Um, so um, I can see it in another way. Uh, but I, maybe I need to get myself a, a rubber duck on the desk as well for some of my thinking. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, that's a really good point, actually, on, on I think it's called expert blindness. Mm. And of course, it, in the industry that, that Supersede is operating in, it, it's full of very smart people. It's full of experts. But mm. it's the, the, the sort of smarter you are and the, the more knowledge you have on a topic, the easier it is to forget what it is to not know things and for not have, to not have the context that you have. Mm. I think that's, that's a very a common thing. So it's, it's, it's definitely worth writing things down for that reason too. So we've got like with distributed working that you can live a more flexible lifestyle. You can be where you want to be. It opens supersede up to a much greater talent pool of people who um, were able to take a different path, very talented, but maybe want to have a different lifestyle. So that opens up that talent pool to you. Um, talked about this idea of it helps you think in a much more succinct way because the importance of writing your ideas down and developing some of these values of patience. So that's all great stuff. But what's the bad stuff? Because I'm sure there's got to be some some drawbacks to this model. And and if so, what are those? Well, it's it's certainly not for everyone. As I said, uh, I think. I think you, you expressed it well earlier when you said that our team sort of self-selects for the behaviors that, we, that, that suit us. But the, one of the challenges we still have are that different cultural backgrounds are indeed very, very different. And uh, that's, that's a reality for us, uh, especially because tone doesn't, uh, communicate well across text, or it's extremely difficult to to express tone through text. That's so, what that's what emojis were invented for, right? Yeah, Ser but seriously, um, yeah. <laughs> yes, and and 
I mean, we, we've we've talked about this internally a fair bit. That even though it seems silly, they do help. Mm. Um, I mean, the challenge, of course, is I think a lot of people don't want to feel infantilized, which excessive emoji use it, it can feel that way. We're still grown ups who want to do a good, serious job. We're doing serious work. Um, so I think something that everybody has had to learn and continue learning are methods of sort of, you know, de-escalation, conflict resolution. And also, I, I wouldn't say it's over-communicating, but, but going, uh, doing the extra work of providing the added context when communicating things, uh, which includes explaining what you're not saying when you say something. Mm. So, for example, if I'm critiquing a colleague's piece of work, I would say, you know, I, I'm not sure about X, um, but that isn't to say I mean Y, for example. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the need to, the over-communication that you talked about is, is prevalent when, when we're faced with feedback scenarios, right? So um, I can see how that must be difficult, particularly for dealing with with cultures where, um, let's say, British culture versus maybe Eastern European, I've seen some definite differences within being very direct in some of the, you know, the Eastern European culture. Um, brutally so, almost the time. The Dutch are pretty famous for this, and but also in the other parts of Eastern Europe. And then you could sort of kind of counter that with someone like in the UK, where sometimes it's best, you know, a lot of talking around the yes. problem. And the, and the reason and the situation, and, and we do have we have people in the UK, we have uh, people in, in an American, two American, one American, two Americans, <laughs> and we have uh, a number of Slavs, myself included. I'm, I'm half Polish, um, and we have people in Russia, in Ukraine, and we have someone from the Netherlands. And the, I mean, those I wouldn't say problems, but but these phenomena have absolutely manifested themselves. In the team, and it's something we have to, to put a lot of work into, into mitigating. Well, I think one of the things I often hear about um, distributed working is that you know, hey, well, what about the human element, right? You know, um, you you miss all of that human interaction and that human connection. And I, I want to get into this because I read one of your articles, and and I, I'm going to ask it this way: Why do you love Monday mornings? <laughs> Good segue. So yeah, we have. We have a tradition at Superseed, which uh, I actually stole from my, my last job, but I thought it was a very good idea for a number of reasons. We have a tradition of beginning our only weekly synchronous team meeting, which is on a Monday, with everyone on the team being given the express opportunity to say thank you to someone on the team for something specific that happened usually within the, in the past week. And there, there is some nuance to this process. Uh, the, the sort of rules, uh, we don't always keep to them, but mostly this, this guideline is that it must be somebody specific. You can't just say, I want to thank everyone because you're all great, because that seems really disingenuous. Uh, and it's we, we try and keep it uh, apolitical as well, which is 
it's hard. This is one of these sort of soft skill things that's, that's hard to put strict bounds on. But, but the point of the exercise is to bring people closer together and to, um, for, for people to, to realize that the hard work that they put in is, has not gone, gone unnoticed by others. Which, which I think reinforces that behavior. I think, I think we have, we, we're quite lucky on the team that people often go the extra mile and, and they, they, they put on the gloves and do the work, um, even when it's not so glamorous, which is, which is really what you need on a team. Hmm. And um, the, the unglamorous work is, is often left unsung. And then if, if, if no one cares about the hard work you're doing, why would you bother to keep doing it? Yeah. So it's important for people to, to, to know that their, their work is being noticed. And it's also a really good opportunity for everybody in the team to have a chance to speak. It's, it's not really fun if it's just the, the bosses of the team speaking all the time. And then, you know, some, more, maybe more junior developer, um, perhaps who doesn't even have English as a first language, is sort of in silence most of the time. That's not really fun for them. Mm. I think also tying back with the um, living and working deliberately idea that we talked about earlier, I think it's a good opportunity for people to, to think about the work they want to be doing and, and where they want to be in life. So if, if it's been a number of weeks, and this is not something we track and enforce, of course, uh, but if, 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 it, if, it, if it were me sitting on a team and every Monday I just think, you know what, I, I have no one to thank. I don't care. I would, that would be good feedback just for myself to think, do I, do I really want to be on this team? I mean, sure, it's, it's a paycheck and then the work's okay, but um, at least in this industry, the, the people who work in this industry are, are generally privileged enough to have other places to go if they want to. And that they, they have that choice. Not everyone, sadly, not everyone has that choice to, to work on what they want to, but in this industry, I think most people do. So if, you're, if you can't find anything to be happy about on a team, then perhaps you better find something in life that makes you happy. That's a, it's a powerful tool, one in that you're you're giving a, a sense of community to each other you're giving everyone an opportunity to have voice and feel heard um and they need to take deliberate action they've got to have clear perception also of what's going on and um and then you said it it gives you this opportunity to say well am i in the right place and self-selecting again you know, give them a sense of ownership over being in the community or not it's it all comes from saying thank you to someone a type of gratitude, kindness. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it seemed, I think, a little bit silly and, and novel <laughs> when we first introduced it, but it quickly became like, no, this is great. I really enjoy this. And everyone really, I mean, perhaps not absolutely everyone, but for the most part, everybody enjoys it. Um, I, I would say, though, that we are, we are very careful to make sure we don't start tracking these things 
and that people don't feel like they need to keep up appearances. Pe- you know, people mm. need to feel uh, safe when they say, yeah, I, I don't have anything to say. I'll pass for this week. Mm. Because it, if, if you create a sort of office politics culture through this kind of process, then it's really counterproductive. Mm. So, uh, Jess, and that brings to mind like this idea that if someone is struggling and through the pandemic, many people were struggling with their sort of mental health and well-being. And as a uh, manager where you're not seeing them walking through the office or, you know, you're not maybe seeing that they, you know, looking, you know, they maybe had to take a moment on their own. How do you deal with those when you get an intuition or you need to help somebody out in your team? How, how do you handle that, that sort of? that caring side of things as, as a, as a manager? Uh, with most of the team, at least the engineering team, uh, I have a weekly one-on-one session, um, which is, which is expressly not a status update on their work. And it's mostly an opportunity for them to have my ear for 30 to 45 minutes or an hour. And the, the structure of these meetings varies wildly. There's no rigid structure. And sometimes it's um, feedback, professional feedback. Sometimes it's a sort of open brainstorming session on how to do something, approach some problem. Sometimes it's just, it's, it's introspection together and, and Sometimes it's just a very casual, how's it going? Like, mm. let's, let's sit and drink coffee and just chat about our adventures and what's going on. Um, which is, I, I, think, I think it's important to have these regularly. And it was one of the important principles from the beginning of the company that although we are a distributed team, we're not outsourcing. It's not, you know, external people that work on this. We, we are still a team. Um, we don't get to see each other you know, every day, but we are still a team of people who care about each other, which, yeah, is, is, is challenging when, when we aren't co-located. Um, but it just means you have to have a more deliberate effort that goes into mm. that. So the, the one-on-one meetings is, is one way to do it. We also have, uh, I, I host most afternoons, a coffee chat um, meeting. So it's, it's not obligatory. It's just an open sort of channel. I'm going to sit and drink coffee and I can share some stories. If people want to join, we, you know, everyone can share stories and drink coffee, just, just chat. This is another idea that I stole from my work in Sweden because it's a bit of a cultural tradition there as well Mm. i think being able to feel a sense of trust in an individual requires that um you feel that they they actually are interested in in your whole self and trust is the the basis of community and so i and i i personally hear in what you're saying to me that the deliberate action is what is important, the deliberate action of caring, of actually wanting to listen and hear what the other person is feeling. Um, that is the most important thing, not 
whether or not you're sitting next to them or across a desk from them in the same office or meeting them at a coffee machine, because you can be physically present but emotionally distant <laughs> if in in, yeah, real, in in an intimate person interaction. Um, it, it really is important is to get that that properly deep interest in the other person and what they're going through. And that, yeah, I I feel anyway can can melt away the 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 disconnect. And you know, my own experience of this, I've been headhunting. I live in Devon. Um, I've always lived remotely from the the markets I serve. I've headhunted in France, Germany, Switzerland, you know, US, Scandinavia, and I've always done it over the phone or like this. And you know, my unifying experience has been that I can develop meaningful relationships with people when you i actually am interested in a meaningful relationship with them and that the medium is actually not as important i mean it there is much to be had at just a phone call there's much to be had with just video or just in typing and having a written communication as is in person they all offer something different but they do not they don't equal a better version of something um they are just a different tool within that within that medium of a true and authentic interaction with someone um so I think that's what I would be pushing people through to is, and, and I hear in what you're saying, to just care, truly care about the personal interaction with the other, with the other. And from there will come the trust and then develop the community. I suppose now let's, let's talk a bit about you, you hiring. And, um, this is a big theme for me and value-based hiring is a topic that I'm very much focused on as a headhunter. And, and what I mean by value-based headhunting is I focus primarily on the values of the individual and the motivations of the individual as the one of the primary things on which I'm actually assessing and competencies while of course remain a, a sort of a hygiene factor dependent upon the needs of the, the position. I ultimately focus on for the best fit for long-term relationships. I focus on values. Um, and I suppose this is kind of where I'd like to sort of just ask you about that because many, many times I've heard it said, unfortunately in, in the more technical disciplines like computer engineering, you know, I've heard it, I've heard CTO say it to me before. Look, I don't care about their personality. <laughs> Just tell me that they can code, and then we'll get them going. Um, and maybe that's a a cliche that people have of a computer engineer. It's somebody who sits in a dark room. You know, you just sort of, you know, you poke a requirement at them every now and again, close the door quick, and let them get on with it because you know you don't want to interact with you know like these highly technical people. Um, but I, I wonder what you think about this idea of focusing on values and motivations and as well as competencies or as a, as a, a preference over like fixed competencies at the stage. Do you have any thoughts on that as a, as a CTO? Yes, I, I absolutely do. I think a lot of the discussion in this space is it tends to be at one end of the extreme or the other, uh, which I don't agree with at all. Uh, I know that it's it's a common idea, as you say, for um, for someone to not care about an engineer's personality. You know, they they can be a horrible person, but the important thing is that they crank out amazing code all the time. I don't agree with that. I also don't agree with the idea that well, technology is the easy part. What's really hard is the soft skills. Uh, technology is not easy either, and and characterizing mm. that way doesn't actually help anybody. Um, one of the one of the great thinkers in this space, Camille Fournier, I think, described that 
idea as Hallmark Pablum, which, which I really appreciate. And it's, it's, it is, I think, counterproductive to say that uh, the only hard thing in, in computer science is dealing with people. It, it has to be both. So uh, there's, there's no point having someone on your team who's, you know, they're, they're nice all the time, but they don't actually get, any, get anything done. You know, mm. people need to be able to ship. And that's a value that we hire for um, quite deliberately. So typically when someone is in the pipeline to join the team, to start to join the engineering team, we do not a lot of technical testing up front, sort of technical pre-screening. We do is we talk to them and see what kind of person they are and how effectively and deliberately they communicate. Usually we can determine by the work they've already done in their career where the technical competence is. That's, that's usually not the problem. Uh, and when it comes to things like knowledge of certain kinds of algorithms, those can be looked up when they're needed. But what, what you can't determine by somebody's CV or their GitHub uh, repositories is their determination to ship things and their ability to focus on a task and, and get things done. So actually, we um, bring people on in almost all cases for a week. Uh, so a, a trial week, which is paid. We, we don't uh, agree with the idea of giving people a big task for them to prove themselves, which takes several hours and they don't get any money for it. That's not fair. So we, we pay people, I think quite fairly for their trial week. <clears throat> and uh, in almost all cases, it's been, here's the general direction we want you to go down, but you figure it out. Uh, I mean, at least where the company is at currently, the, the types of people that we're hiring for are so-called managers of one. So for the most part, they can determine their own direction. They can pick what is valuable to work on and they can find a way to solve the given problem um, in a variety of capacities. So they'll be able to find the cheap solution. They'll be able to find the comprehensive solution. Uh, we have this idea on the team of building the skateboard before we build the Ferrari. So if we have some product idea or some feature, we're not going to try and make all the disjoint pieces in isolation and then construct them together for a big bang release where it's going to be amazing at the end. We try and just make the absolute simplest version of some idea, which is you know like a skateboard. And then, oh, it could be better if it had some handlebars, you just add that bit. Now it's a scooter, but it still does the same thing. It still gets you around. Mm. Uh, I think there are a couple of illustrations um, online which express this idea, but that's something we, we, we try and adhere to quite a lot mm. on the team. So I hear in that then that you, you do value um, the way in which people get stuff done, um, the, but of course the ability to get stuff the, the, the technical competency, of course, is important. Um, and you're testing that by giving them this trial week, which seems like a great way to do it. Um, 
give them a trial week to to try something out, see how good they are, um, and that will evidence whether or not they actually got the competency. And while you're doing the interviewing, you're also assessing the sort of the personality qualities. Can they also fit within the team and the culture of the organization? Um, and do you find that works even with like hard to win talent? Because I suppose you're competing with people who may be already in jobs they want. So, you know, you say, look, come and do a trial week, but you know, you might not, you know, get the job at the end of it. How does that work when somebody's already in a job and you need them to to move? That has happened a number of times. Um, sometimes we can, you know, make have a shorter week, but in in most cases, people have just taken leave from their job and they'll say, oh, I'm going on holiday for a week or, or some such story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think super C doesn't need to be an amazing place to work. I think it just needs to be, um, a, a comfortable, calm, reasonable place to work. I think actually the, the, the standard is very low. What we're, what we're up against in, in terms of us competing for mm. uh, people's attention on the market, I, th- I think, I think, yeah, the the status quo is is kind of terrible. What do you mean by that? I mean that people are tired of having to do synchronous daily standups where they have this uh, really monotonous routine of. Yesterday I worked on this. Today I will work on this. I do not have any blockers. It's just like <laughs> such a waste of time. And uh, this is seen in the industry as some kind of best practice. Hmm. Often when you when you join a company, it, the questions will be like, "So, do you do one week sprints or two week sprints? How, how does your Scrum meetings work?" And it's it's just taken um as a universal truth that you have to do these these little uh religious processes um and if you if you say to someone actually we don't do that we think a bit more clearly about what we're doing we mostly leave you alone to do your best work that's that's enough motivation for people to think wow i yeah i should check this out it's different it's something new (laughs) i'm gonna go do that it's worked for us so far and for an investor listening to you here to saying that, you know, um, that might be investing in SuperSeed or thinking about it, does that also mean that you don't have to pay talent quite as much or you can secure them more, you know, more affordably? Uh, what does it mean? What's one of the other advantages of that different style? Oh, yeah, I, I was sort of thinking about this question popping up earlier and I'm wondering how to put it tactfully. Yes, yes, we can pay people. Um, less than if we were based in, especially if we were based in Silicon Valley, for example. And I've, the reason I'm, I'm conscious of being tactful now is because I've had it in the past where people say, you need to hire graduates in Silicon Valley because you pay for what you get. And I think that's, it's, it's bullshit. And not only is it bullshit, it's racist bullshit. Because there, there is this very common sentiment that, you know, if you, if you want things to work, you need to get smart people in America. Or if you're cheap, you can farm the work out to Ukraine or India or Russia. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, it's just nonsense that the, the idea is, you know, that the, the, the talent in any of those other countries 
is not up to par. Um, personally, I think I think that's it's it's the same it's the same reason why the West was a bit, you know, incredulous at the Soviets winning the space race. I mean, there are lots of smart people all around the world, and they don't all cost two hundred grand a year. Yeah, I, I understand why it's a difficult question to ask because one would say, "Oh, well, are we being cheap?" But I think it's more to an idea of your for the person who you're hiring, the flexibility of lifestyle is more important than than another fifty grand on the paycheck. Absolutely, that's only what I I think that um, when you find people, uh, my my personal experience as being a headhunter, that money as a motivating factor is probably about number three or number four down on the list or what truly drives outstanding people. I've never had what I consider to be an A-class talent focus on money. It, it just, they, of course, the money comes as a result of their excellence, but usually they're shooting at like delivering impactful work or living in a meaningful way, working with people that they truly respect. That is the thing that they're aiming at. Um, because there's a recognition otherwise that, well, you know, money just doesn't bring you happiness. Uh, it brings comfort and some satisfaction and some flexibility and freedom, but it, it certainly does not generate sort of the meaningful experiences. So, yeah, I know it's it can feel like a bit of a, and I agree to your point as well about, you know, the quality of work. You know, I, I think I heard it said, um, maybe by Naval Ravikant, that never has there been a greater opportunity to learn but a greater deficit of motivation to learn. And so it, it's so true that, you know, if you are a plucky musician who's been traveling around Europe, um, who decides they want to learn how to develop, you know, computer um, engineering skills, as long as you're motivated to go out and do that, there is such a plethora of opportunity that does not have to be a traditional route. Of course, go the computer science way, as we say, but, you know, motivation is probably at the heart of it, the, the, the attribute, the value that needs to be nurtured and fostered yeah. in all of this. Yeah. So, okay, well, finishing up, a question I always like to end up with, though, is um, some books. So like your top three books or three, some books that really influenced you or love. That can be self-help, technical, sci-fi. I don't care what they are, but I suppose books that you think have come and influenced your life and you, you like to maybe readily share with others. Do you have any that you would recommend? Yes. I think the, the book that immediately comes to mind is Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. That gave me a lot of perspective into um, what a religion is, what a belief system is. Um, I mean, ha having the idea of different economic systems and even just currency that we use, understanding that those are belief systems as well with different mechanics. It's a really powerful idea. I really enjoyed that. And it gave me a lot of insight into the, the history of, of humanity. The, the following two books in that series, Homo Deus and I think 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, also good, but the highlight for me was the first one, Sapiens. Mm. I also really like Randall Munro as an author. He is famous for a webcomic series called XKCD. It's very popular among engineers. XKCD? Um, I've not heard of this one. Definitely check it out. Probably you've seen some of the illustrations, um, the monochrome stick figure comic strips. 
Okay, yes. And very math and engineering focused. And his book called What If is a very enjoyable read. And it's a scientist's answer to ridiculous questions. For example, how high would you need to drop a raw beefsteak from for it to cook itself on its re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere? And he does performs all the mathematical calculations to figure that out <laughs> and, uh, and tries to describe what you would be left with at the end. It's very, very funny. And very Is it insightful. possible to get to medium? That's my question. Yeah, that would be that. <laughs> um, no, as, as I recall, basically whatever you try, it's going to be charred on the outside and raw on the inside. Well, some people like it like that. So that's, uh, that, <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds, um, yeah, creative nerdiness. I like that. Okay, cool. Another Monroe. And anything else? Is your as, final? As a third book, I, I really enjoyed. Bad Science by Ben Goldacre. I believe it was called Bad Science. And he uh, investigates all the, all the pseudoscience and, and the failings uh, of the, the medical industry to better inform people and to, to run meaningful experiments. Um, I'm, I'm very much into the quack medicine uh, topic. I think it's, it's fascinating that so many people globally can be defrauded by witch doctors and homeopaths. That seems to affect a lot of people that I care about, so I'm, I'm, I care a lot about this topic. Um, and I'm, I'm always interested to hear how bad ideas, conspiracy theories, you know, mm. anti-vaccine people, sort of how, how, the, how these ideas spread um, and how to convince someone of an idea when, when facts don't mean anything. That's fascinating to me because my, my worldview, as, as far as I, I, I of course, there's, there's bias that plays into this, but I believe my worldview is predominantly fact-based as best as I, as I can. So it's, it's fascinating to me when somebody will look at some data and completely discard it because it doesn't, doesn't agree with their narrative. Whereas my understanding of science and just quest for knowledge generally, is to find, is, is the work of finding uh, counterexamples that, that disprove ideas, which then brings you closer to the truth. I think Bad Science is a, is a really good book for that. Hmm. Fascinating. What an interesting topic in and around um, sort of the, the viral nature of bad ideas. Um, the, it is a theme that's something I've thought about a lot, actually, and how we convince others and how we are convinced and the, the emotional triggers that are sort of universal to humans. This is, a, this is an interesting theme of many philosophers. And also, I think the antidote to that is actually good philosophy, in fact, and um, trying to cultivate a sense of clear perspective. And that helps you to weed out the bad ideas. And I think that's something that certainly in been proliferated through antiquity from the, the best philosophies. I can think of Stoicism for that, certainly in their drive continually for, for seeing things clearly for what they are so we can weed out those bad ideas. Um, so that's one for me to check out for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try a, a new question I have on you, Jesson, if I may. All right. Who is a thinker that you really admire that you don't think other people know much about? Peter Hinchins. 
uh, sadly, the late Peter Hinchins passed away uh, with, with cancer a few years ago. Um, he is the creator of a technology called Zero MQ, and he, he wrote a number of very interesting books. Uh, my favorite being Culture and Empire, somewhat on the same topic as Sapiens. And Zero MQ is a rather sort of famously well functioning open source. Community. I think his his perspective, and she documents very nicely, um, is is a, a radical way of of thinking about how to get people with very different motivations and very different backgrounds to work together productively. And some of those ideas filter through into supersedes work as well. Um, so I think uh, I'm not sure we take a contrarian point. To the rest of the industry, but we definitely do do things slightly differently from a lot of other companies. For example, most of the time when somebody submits a unit of work, we ship it pretty much immediately. And we, we shy away from this gatekeeping attitude that a lot of companies have where they, uh, it, you know, a unit of work must first go through militant inspection uh, before we'll accept it. And uh, his approach was very different from that. Mm. And that's worked really well for us. Peter Hitchens, Zero MQ. He's Cultural Empire. That's one to check out. Thank you very much. You said you answered it incredibly quickly, which was a good sign. <laughs> um, and, I, I, and I think there are so many wonderful thinkers out there who... Um, often undiscovered. And I'll say to one of the books you mentioned, Sapiens, there was a great counterbook that I first read before Sapiens, which is by a guy called Andrew Marr. He's a relatively well-known BBC presenter. Um, maybe you know him. I think it's called a, he wrote a book called A History of the World. I got that right as well. And it's, it's I think, actually a better version of Sapiens. Um, and um, I would thoroughly recommend that if you were also interested in Sapiens. He's a historian and as well as a BBC. And so, um, yeah, that's a, uh, it's a much un unknown version or kind of uh, of of a similar topic. So if you're interested in that, that's one to have. Absolutely. Thank you for the recommendation. Um, but brilliant. Well, um, Jezen, I, I, I'd like to say thank you so much for all your time and, and spending time talking about what you guys are doing at Superseed. Um, I, having spoken to you, to Ben, to Jared, I'm continually impressed by how thoughtful you are and how deliberate you are in what you're doing in the way that you're approaching tackling this massive issue of reimagining an reinsurance ecosystem. And, um, but you've shared with me, I think a very important topic around the, the importance of creating a distributed working model and a culture which can support that. So thank you for your time. Thank you for everything. And I wish you and the whole team much success at Supersede. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.